1987, the United States and the Soviet Union signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, better known as the INF Treaty. It marked the first time the superpowers had agreed to reduce their nuclear arsenals and eliminate an entire category of nuclear weapons. No treaty before has ever been based on as much verification and on-site inspection and so forth as this one. These are, this is what has been holding it up for so long until we finally got over that hurdle. The deal was contingent on Defense Intelligence Agency verification and on on-site inspections, which would be carried out at each other's facilities in the United States and the Soviet Union. You're about to hear a short clip from President Ronald Reagan and General Secretary of the Communist Party Mikhail Gorbachev's joint press conference, minutes before they put pen to paper. I want you to listen for two big takeaways. The first is the importance of DIA's support to the treaty verification, and the second is of paramount importance to history and to this very podcast. It was something rarely heard at a treaty signing, if ever at all. It's called laughter. We have listened to the wisdom of, in an old Russian maxim, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. <laughs> you repeat that at every meeting. <laughs> I like it. Is it conceivable that an entire category of nuclear weapons was eliminated because the superpower leaders had a sense of humor? Because they like to tell jokes and share a laugh? Our special guest, Russian comedian Yakov Shmirnov, thinks it was. There's several things happened when people are laughing together. They're connected on a very specific wavelength uh, of their humor, their intelligence level, uh, their understanding of the world, all of that happens in a moment of laughter. So Reagan was a master of that. He was a sponge of those Russian jokes because to him, it was a simple a way to communicate very complex concepts. And I think that his ability to do that and, and trigger it with uh, Gorbachev became their uh, secret channel on which they were able to communicate uh, to one another. And I really think it played a huge part in changing the world. But most historians are not going to see it that way. But as a comedian, I totally see it that way. This is DIA Connections. I'm convinced that American-Soviet relations need a fresh start, a genuine give-and-take on regional conflicts, on human rights, and on the reduction of arms. Some of the stories have come from Russian emigre comedian Yakov Smirnov, who has entertained the president and shared jokes with his speechwriters. He leaned towards me and he goes, Yakov, how would you deal with Gorbachev? And I'm... I'm, I'm looking around, I'm going, is that, am I the most qualified to answer this question? Have you heard the one about the most powerful person on the planet and his Russian immigrant comedian friend who advised him about the other most powerful person on the planet so together they could rid the world of nuclear weapons and save humanity? Are you ready for a good laugh? Two fellows in the Soviet Union were walking down the street and one of them says, have we really achieved full communism? 
is this it? Is this now full communism? And the other one said, oh, hell no, it's, things are going to get a lot worse. What surprises me, American people don't know we have comedy in Russia. We have comedians, they're there. They're dead. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. They're not going anywhere. Thanks for joining us on INF Treaty Part 2, Reagan and Shmirnov. We've got lots of stories and plenty of shtick. It's our second part of our discussion about Overlooked, and we hope you think entertaining stories that preceded the treaty that eliminated some of the world's most dangerous weapons, nuclear-armed warheads. And we'll talk about DIA's contribution in making it possible. Part one of our two shows about the INF Treaty was called Missiles and Movies, and it focused on a pair of 1983 films that impacted President Reagan. The first was War Games. It was a fun but chilling movie about an accidental first strike caused by a computer. Shall we play a game? The second was called The Day After. This is not an exercise. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time, ICBMs. Over 300 missiles inbound now. It was about the devastating effects of nuclear war in America's heartland. After watching that one, Reagan wrote this in his diary. Quote, it's very effective and left me greatly depressed. Whether it will be of help to the anti-nukes or not, I can't say. My own reaction was one of having to do all we can to have a deterrent and to see there is never a nuclear war. But this show is less about catastrophe and computer glitches and more about someone that had President Reagan in stitches. My name is Yakov Smirnov. I am originally from the Soviet Union. Thank you very much. <laughs> in the 1980s, Yakov Smirnov skyrocketed to the top of the comedy world. Yeah. Feels, feels pretty good to be an American. In my high school... He appeared numerous times on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He headlined in Vegas, and he shared the stage in comedy clubs with, let's name drop, Billy Crystal... Jay Leno and Richard Pryor. He even had his very own sitcom, named after his famous catchphrase. What a country. <laughs> yep, what a country. And his popularity came from offering up a new perspective on the differences between life in Russia and America. I, I was reading newspaper. The ad in the paper said, big sale last week. <laughs> now, why advertise... I already missed it. They're just rubbing it in. Another ad in the paper said, we guarantee our furniture and we stand behind it for six months. That's the reason I left Soviet Union. I don't want people behind my furniture. I had the ability to explain this complex concept of the Soviet Union in a very simple way. And that's what Americans embraced. Maybe that's why he was Ron and Nancy Reagan's favorite comedian. Nancy said to me, you know, you scared me uh, one day. And I go, what, what did I do? And she said, well, I'm another room of the house and I hear Ronnie is making this loud noises and I I got scared and I ran into the to the room and he was reading your book and laughing. 
You'll hear more from Yakov later about his amazing journey leaving the USSR in 1977 and coming to the USA. And we'll hear about how and why he advised President Reagan on ways to connect to the new leader of the Soviet Union. Another Soviet leader who was too old and too sick when he took power to hold on to it has died. And now a 54-year-old has taken over, someone who theoretically at least will be around for a generation. Get used to the name, Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1985, Gorbachev became the leader of the Communist Party. And sensing that he was different from his predecessors, Reagan was ready to do something in his fifth year in office he had not done before, and that was meet with the Soviet leader face to face. And he knew when it happened, he'd be ready in his own inimitable style, with a sense of humor and good material. Just show you how youthful I am, I intend to campaign in all 13 states. <laughs> in his book, Reagan, The Life, author H.W. Brands writes, Reagan's humor was rarely shy. His jokes were the kind that anyone could appreciate. It was a fellow that was on his way to a mountain resort, and a policeman stopped him and said, did you know that you're driving without taillights? And the driver hopped out of the car. He was so badly shaken that the officer took pity on him and said, well, now, wait a minute, calm down. It's not that serious an infraction. The fellow said, it may not mean much to you, but to me it means I've lost my trailer, a wife, and four kids. <laughs> and then there's the one that brought down the house. That's the one he delivered at the 1984 presidential debate to the younger Democratic nominee, Walter Mondale. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Even though he got the laughs, there was cause for concern at the White House. When Ronald Reagan sits down with Mikhail Gorbachev two weeks from now, some of his more diplomatic aides hope that he won't indulge in his latest hobbies, telling jokes he's collected about the Soviet Union. They came to General Secretary Gorbachev, and they told him there was a woman in the Kremlin and she wouldn't leave unless she could see him. So he said, well, bring her in, and they brought her in. And he said, old mother, what is it? What? She said, I have a question. He said, all right. She said, was communism invented by a politician or a scientist? Well, he said, a, a politician. She said, that explains it. A scientist would have tried it on mice first. Can you pose again? Pose again? Can you stand there and pose again? The stage was set. Up at the top, sir. It was 1985, and the location was Geneva, Switzerland. It was a high-stakes, first-ever meeting of these Cold War adversaries. Seems like it might not be the best time to use a joke as an icebreaker. But when you're known as the great communicator, you're probably pretty good at reading a room. So, he went for it. One of these stories, the one I'm going to tell you, I told to General Secretary Gorbachev. And he laughed. <laughs> The story was an American and a Russian arguing about their two countries. And the American said, look, in my country, I can walk into the Oval Office. I can pound the president's desk and say, Mr. President, I don't like the way you're running our country. And the Russian said, I can do that. The American said, you can? He says, yes. I can go into the Kremlin, to the general secretary's office, pound his desk and say, Mr. General Secretary, I don't like the way President Reagan's running his country. <laughs> Although an agreement wasn't reached this time around, one thing was clear. They really liked each other. And that led to a summit the next year in Iceland. The Secretary of State at that time was George Schultz. And he said, 
All of the material that led to the INF Treaty was worked out at Reykjavik. But I think beyond that, they came to know each other and respect each other. These two men sort of clicked. President Reagan and fellow jokester Yakov Shmirnov clicked at their first meeting, too. Here's Yakov with DIA chief historian Paul Isaacson describing that first encounter. When you sat down with the president then, what was it like? Did you immediately have a rapport with him? Yes, yeah. The rapport even happened as he walked in and they introduced us. And all of a sudden, his focus was on me and mine on him. And there was nobody else. Everybody else kind of disappeared. Wow. So you really hit it off. Big time. He really liked the joke exchange. It was just like being in Odessa with my friends, cracking jokes. And one joke triggers another joke. And then you just keep going. To fully appreciate how remarkable it was that Yakov Naumovich Bokis was dining with the commander-in-chief just 10 years after leaving his home in Odessa, Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union, you need to hear the backstory. Tell us a little bit about sort of the beginning of your life. Mom was a teacher. Dad was an engineer. We lived in a communal apartment. We were living with nine other families in an apartment that was really built for one family. And most of us lived in similar condition, so we accepted that as norm. So we made jokes about it constantly, like one of the jokes I still use in my show. My mom, my dad, and I shared the bedroom till I was 26 years old. I'm not making this up. When I was a little kid, my parents wanted to be romantic. They would send me to look out the window. And then my dad would say, so what do you see in the window? I said, our neighbor's being romantic. (laughs) He said, how can you tell? I said, because their son is looking at me. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. When and why did you start dreaming about coming to America? One time I uh, woke up, I was maybe eight years old, and I woke up because I heard static noise in our room, and I see my dad uh, sitting next to that big radio and with his ear to it, and I said, Dad, what are you listening to? And he, he goes, shh, shh, don't let the neighbors hear us. I, I'm listening to the voice of America. So now I sat down next to him, and I'm listening, and they're in Russian, they're saying, a uh, woman's voice saying, give us your tired, you're hungry, and you're poor. And I'm thinking, I'm qualified for that. And so he explains to me that she's this tall, stunning woman who is standing in the middle of the harbor in New York, holding a torch, lighting a way for people like me, you, your mother, someday who want to go to America. I start dreaming about Lady Liberty, Lady Liberty. And when I woke up, I start drawing the way I pictured her in my mind. And my mom grabbed me and she said, don't let anyone see those pictures. Liberty is not allowed in this country. It's a crime. We're going to get in trouble. 
And so that was my introduction to kind of uh, my fascination and love romance with America. For Yakov, dreaming of leaving the Soviet Union and coming to America was about as realistic as being a stand-up comic for tourists on cruise ships in the Black Sea. Or was it? So this is a strange concept, Russian comedian to Americans. Sounds like oxymoron, sounds like Amish electrician. You had to submit your material to Ministry of Culture that had a department of jokes. Everything had to be approved by the Soviet government. They send it back to you censored. You have to stay with the script. You cannot improvise. If someone heckles you from the audience, you can't say, like, your mother wears army boots. <laughs> because she probably does. Despite the Soviet government red-flagging his material, Yakov gave tourists plenty to laugh about. And in return, they gave him something to think about. I saw the spark in, in those people's eyes. And that was something that I didn't know... It's possible uh, to have that spark of freedom, that's what I called it, in their eyes, and I could see it. And in Russians, there wasn't one. Right. And so that was my hope someday to get that spark in my eyes. And so that was kind of what fueling my desire to get out. Wow, wow. So speaking of getting out, let me ask you briefly, I mean, most Americans, I think, at that time, believed that no one could leave. That's correct. Yeah. Could you tell us briefly, how did you get out? How were you able to come here? Jimmy Carter was essential in us getting out, really. As long as I am president, the government of the United States will continue throughout the world to enhance human rights. He made a deal. They needed wheat. They were starving. The Soviet government made the deal with Jimmy Carter about exchanging wheat for people who wanted to leave. So my parents and I were basically exchanged for some grain. And every time I see a Wonder Bread truck, I salute. <laughs> He came with his parents to America, specifically New York, in 1977. He didn't have money or a job. He didn't speak English. And oh, by the way, he wanted to be a professional comedian. So how do you make money, learn the language, and hone your comedic skills at the same time? You become a bartender. I think I heard one of your jokes about being a bartender. I think it starts off something like, in Russia, it's a very easy job. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, it's two glasses of vodka and a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were working hard and you started to do your, your comedy and you started to, to build a career and as a comedian. And it obviously wasn't easy, but you were starting to have some success. You were working some clubs in Hollywood and stuff. And then at one point you kind of had a game-changing moment. You did a beer commercial. In America, there is plenty of light beer, and you can always find a party. In Russia, party always finds you. <laughs> Everything you always wanted in a beer, unless. <laughs> it it was a big hit, so all of a sudden I was kind of exposed 
to a bigger audience. And that's how I got on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He killed it on Carson, and it earned him an invitation to an exclusive dinner party in Washington, D.C., attended by President Ronald Reagan. First thing he says, have you heard this joke? So he initiates a rush and starts telling me a Russian joke about the guy who wants to buy a car. The joke that he tells me is like... um, that it takes forever to get a car in the Soviet Union. You know, there's a 10-year delay in the Soviet Union of delivery of an automobile. And you go through quite a process when you're ready to buy, and then you put up the money in advance. This man, he laid down his money, and then the fellow that was in charge said to him, okay, come back in 10 years and get your car. And he said, morning or afternoon. (laughs) And... And the fellow behind the counter said, well, 10 years from now, what difference does it make? And he said, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. That's President Reagan telling me the joke. I crack up. I don't expect it to be, but it, it's immediately like everybody's like it was a tennis match that everybody looks at me. Now it's my, I need to uh, tell a joke. Tell us the joke you came back with to Reagan. I told him when... When Americans landed on the moon, that was a big slap in the face to the Soviet government. So Brezhnev called all the cosmonauts into his office and said, Americans landed on the moon, we have to land on the sun. And they said, we can't do that, Comrade Brezhnev, we will burn up. And he said, you think I'm stupid? You land at night. <laughs> what was what was Reagan's reaction? I mean, everybody cracked up, and I was like, "Thank God!" You know, you hit it off so well with the president that you got additional invitations in the future. Yes, yes. Tell us about what you talked about. He really liked the joke exchange. You know, we would get together. It would be like, "Here's here's another joke." you know, and have you heard this one? Then he would get uh, more serious and he would ask me, how would you deal with Gorbachev? Oh, so he actually asked you. He did. That was the second time I met him. He leaned towards me and he goes, Yakov, how would you deal with Gorbachev? And I'm I'm, I'm looking around, I'm going, is that, am I the most qualified to answer this question? But he really paid attention. He really wanted to know. And I told him, I said, look, uh, Mr. President, if you want to be friends with Secretary Gorbachev, uh, maybe you can treat him like your equal, but you need to know that their military is not as great as they say it is. Because when they shoot a missile, then they have to go watch CNN to see where it landed. And it, it would crack him up, but, but really he wanted to know just a, a, a person, you know, because I'm like going, am I the most qualified here? And he said, yes, you are, because you lived in Soviet regime, socialist country for 26 years, and none of us politicians have. So I'm very interested in actually, how would you approach that? Maybe at that moment, you went from a friend to an advisor. 
in in some ways i didn't see myself in that role uh even though dana rohrbacher who was his uh, head speechwriter at that time said a yakov president reagan is going to meet with gorbachev and he said president reagan really was impressed with you so he's asking if you would write jokes for his speech so i remember uh when i wrote some jokes and they liked them and they put placed them in the speech and then uh dana said do you mind looking over the speech just to get your opinion and so i said sure i'll read it so i read it and then they said what what's your take on that and i i said look it's obviously your your game here but i don't think this is the right tone one passage of the speech originally read the soviet leadership is like a dog who is growling at you and wagging its tail at the same time you just don't know which end to believe yakov told them to drop it because when americans think of dogs they see cuddly companions but most russians were too poor to keep pets they associated dogs with police oppression this comedian from odessa is now influencing world politics it's hard for me to accept that credit in some ways because i see myself as just a funny guy but uh, mitsy shore who is the, who was the owner of the comedy store she kept telling me all the way to the end of her life she said you and reagan changed the world reagan's head speechwriter dana rohrbacher said if the president's giving a speech about the soviet union certainly on the list of people you'd call would be the CIA and Yakov Smirnov. Reagan would tell jokes with Gorbachev. Why do you think he did that? I actually had an opportunity to talk to interpreter who was the only person in the room with Reagan Gorbachev. I was very curious how this change, how did the world change and I had a hunch that had to do with Reagan's humor and ability to create laughter i said was there any laughter in that room and he said why do you need to know that and i said well i'm a, i'm a comedian and i believe that there's a formula to laughter and people think it's just humor but actually there's a main ingredient that they overlook and that's when people meet each other's needs and then they apply humor if the needs are not met then the humor is not going to trigger the laughter it's just not going to happen so they're going to butt heads and he said you know what's interesting first two days there was no laughter probably because they weren't meeting each other's needs and uh, because reagan was telling gorbachev about free market economy gorbachev was not interested he said what's the point of that and reagan literally got up and and headed for the door but before he opened the door he surprisingly he turned around and a big smile on his face he extended his hand to gorbachev and and said my name is ronnie can i call you misha can we just um be friends gorbachev laughed and i believe that was the end of the cold war the cold war wasn't over yet But in 1989, there was a clear indication that the world and Yakov's career was about to change. 
Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I remember when Showtime Network, when the Berlin Wall came down, they called me and they said, we would like you to go to Russia. And I said, what did they do to you? And they said, the Berlin Wall is down. I said, yeah, but what if they're just remodeling? (laughs) By 1991, the United States and Russia had honored the INF Treaty by together destroying a total of 2,692 short and intermediate range missiles. That was 1,846 Soviet missiles and 846 American missiles gone. And in 1991, Yakov learned what that meant for a career built while two countries were competing in an arms race. He was the king of Cold War comedy, but with no Cold War, there was no need for a Cold War comedian. That harsh reality set in one evening as he watched Late Night with David Letterman. The topic for Dave's top 10 list was things that will change immediately now that the Cold War is over. Coming in at number one was Yakov Shmirnov will be out of work. I remember I was at my in-law's house and they're all laughing, I'm laughing. And then six months later, I'm not laughing because my contracts in Vegas, Atlantic City, Reno, Tahoe, None of them were renewed. I was pigeonholed by the industry as the Soviet comedian. And when the Soviet Union is, uh, is gone, there is no need for me. Yakov became a punchline, and he spent years struggling to rebuild his career. But he proved to be resilient after an epiphany. As he explains in his book, Shmirnov for the Soul, he writes, I'm not funny because I'm Russian. I'm just funny. That is my gift to see things through the eyeglasses of humor. It doesn't matter whether I'm looking at Russia or America or life in general. My gift, such as it is, makes people laugh. He restructured his routine and he left Hollywood for Branson, Missouri, where he opened up his own comedy theater. And we had a teacher who was not very friendly and she said to the class, anybody who's not smart, stand up. And I stood up. And she said, Yaakov, you're pretty smart. I said, I know, but I didn't want you to be the only one standing. (laughs) That was not smart at all. Yaakov experienced a lifetime of highs and lows since coming to America with his parents in 1977. He said, our dream was to be free, free to live the life we chose, not the life that was chosen for us. He also told us about the best day of his life. You remember earlier when he described his boyhood dream of coming to America and the connection he made with the Statue of Liberty when he listened to his father describe it? Well, on July 4th, 1986, Yakov stood next to that symbol of freedom to be sworn in as an American citizen. That was at a celebration in New York Harbor called Liberty Weekend. There she is, the Statue of Liberty, the reason we are all here on this 4th of July to rededicate her on the 100th anniversary of the occasion on which she was given to the United States of America by France. To be there and realize my my dream was coming true. That picture there, Barbara, of that man sitting holding the Statue of Liberty in his lap. I don't think there could be anything more dignified than that. I was in the front row and ABC did the broadcast and they started... Uh, with me 
sitting there with the Statue of Liberty on my lap. That I will support and defend, and I will support and defend. the Constitution of the United States. And the laws of the United States. So it was a very emotional moment of hearing those words, my fellow Americans, and recognizing he's talking to me, and and feeling all of these emotions of the immigrants that came before me for Ellis Island, and and how difficult it was for for me to embrace the idea of leaving the Soviet Union, but recognizing that this is my home. There was a place to live. Now I have my home and I will stay here forever. Wouldn't that be a perfect ending to a podcast? Except for years. Russia has violated the terms of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty without remorse. That's former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on February 2nd, 2019. If Russia does not return to full and verifiable compliance with the treaty within this six-month period by verifiably destroying its INF-violating missiles, their launchers, and associated equipment, the treaty will terminate. On August 2nd, 2019, the United States formally withdrew from the INF Treaty. To learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency, please check out our shiny new website at dia.mil. And don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.